It's a legacy of the progressive era in American politics. Voters in California get to recall state office holders if they don't like the job they're doing without waiting for the next election. This act of direct democracy has been tried many times since the state's recall law was first enacted in 1913, rarely succeeding. But it's facing one of its biggest tests this week when Gavin Newsom, the liberal Democratic governor who was elected by a whopping 24% margin in 2018, will face a recall fueled by discontent among some voters over his handling of the COVID pandemic and the state's economic woes. Newsom handed recall proponents a gift last year when, while publicly urging citizens to wear masks, he was photographed maskless indoors at a fancy Napa Valley restaurant attending a birthday party for a Sacramento lobbyist buddy. But more recently, polls show he has recovered, even while a conservative Trump supporter and Fox News regular, Larry Elder, has shot to the top of the list of candidates seeking to replace him. We'll sort out the confusing details of California's recall election with Yahoo News political correspondent Andrew Romano and with Dan Schnoor, a former GOP strategist turned academic who has studied the recall movement on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isgoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. And we have for uh, today's uh, crosstalk our California Bureau Chief, Andrew Romano. Andrew, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me, guys. So this is going to be a pretty big week in politics. Uh, We've got the California recall on Tuesday, which, as things now look, is likely to be a victory for Gavin Newsom, that he will survive this. At least that's what the polls show. And if he does, that's going to be a big victory for the Democrats, which who could you probably use a big victory politically right now after the bad summer that they've had. But also this week, we've got the reconciliation process proceeding in Congress, and it's not going well so far for the Democrats. Joe Manchin has pretty much laid down uh, the gauntlet. He's not going to go along with the $3.5 trillion package that the White House and House Democrats and the Senate Democratic leaders want. He's uh, said he could go along with something like $1.5 trillion, which is, as according to my math, 57%. I'm going to break in here, Isakoff, and yeah. dispute your characterization of things not going well for Democrats. It's not going well by the kind of standards of the political media that if if well, the Democrats Biden's don't... Wait a, second, wait a second, wait a second. Wait yeah. a second. You're talking about... But you're talking about the reconciliation process not going well. So let's stick to the process. And you're using a standard that if they don't get the $3.5 trillion, it'll be a victory for the Republicans, a defeat for the Democrats. The negotiations really are just starting in earnest. And if Manchin is already saying he could support up to $1.5 trillion, then it's possible, I would say probably even likely, that he'll end up somewhere between $2 trillion and $2.5 trillion. 
way short of the $3.5 trillion, but nevertheless, a historic spending bill. Are we going to have a skullduggery pool on what the final number uh, is uh, going to be? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to break in here. Go ahead. I just, go ahead. A historical, I mean, every time we say trillion dollars, yeah. I, I remind myself of like when I, you know, back in the day, ancient history, when Barack Obama came into office and could only get what, 800 or 900 billion dollars in the face of the biggest economic crash since the Great Depression, we're routinely talking about trillion dollar sums. So when you're defining victory or a loss for Democrats, I think we need to keep that historical perspective. After they've already gotten trillions. Trillions and trillions. Yes, exactly. Okay, so but can can I also add it's it's over a ten year period, so it's not like three point five trillion dollars all at once. I'm not arguing so, the merits okay. <laughs> of this. I'm just arguing the politics of it, and we will see. You know, assuming that Mansion gets his way and he's got more leverage than anybody right now, there's going to be a lot of pain and a lot of blood on the floor when they have to start slashing, you know, the wish list that the White House and that is the yeah, again, again, it's not going to be gonna blood really on the floor. <laughs> it's not yeah. going to be blood on the floor. There's just going to be a few like raised voices in some, <laughs> in some rooms and then they're going to come out with oh a number. Oh my God, I can't believe <laughs> this Pollyannish attitude you folks have. Hi, the point I wanted to make to bring this back to California was that if the reconciliation, uh, you know, falters, it ups the chance that another California Republican, Kevin McCarthy, could be Speaker of the House, you know, in not in the not too distant future. So um, it's I'm just trying to justify bringing in Romano in on all points, our California bureau chiefs. I'm bringing it back to California. Anyway, Andrew, tell us, give us your uh, broad brush take on the recall. Look, you mentioned the polls. There was a period of time in August where the polls were showing the race essentially tied. Now, it's not a head-to-head race, as I think most listeners know. Newsom needs to get uh, above 50% of people saying they want to keep him in office on the first ballot, and then it won't move to a second ballot for a replacement. That was a razor-thin margin uh, throughout the month of August, so people were really surprised that it was that close in a state that's as blue as California. Since then, since the start of September, we have seen a gap open up now. It's about, I'm looking at the average here, a 12-point gap. Keep at 54% versus remove at 42%. That's that's huge. Um, so it is looking like, again, if those polls are correct, Newsom will survive this recall challenge. It's sort of a reversion to what we would expect from California. You know, he, his approval ratings have not been particularly low. Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one in California. And it looks like they're going to, in all likelihood, keep him in office. We'll see who shows up. Um, we've got a lot of ballots in from Democrats right now, sending in their mail ballots early. Republicans, suspicious of mail voting, they're waiting for election day to go and vote in, in person. Um, we'll see what that balance ends up being. But uh, it's looking pretty good for Newsom at this point. But one thing that seems to be helping him quite a bit is COVID, right? And he's running on the the severity of the crisis. And basically, he's got this punching bag and Larry Elder, the uh, conservative talk show host who's against mandates, who's against, you know, doing anything serious on the COVID issue. And Biden has now weighed in in a big way to try to get the vaccination numbers up. The order to 
that OSHA is going to enforce a vaccination mandate for businesses with 100 workers or more, or either they vaccinate or get weekly tested, and a mandate for all federal employees, which is a lot of folks. This strikes me as likely good politics for the White House. The question is, I mean, there's going to be litigation, surely, on this that will challenge it. How effective is this going to be in getting those vaccination numbers up? Getting the vaccination numbers up, I would say this is one of the most effective things Biden can do from the White House. Um, Now, for the private employers, uh, companies over uh, 100 employees, um, that is, I think, something like 80 million private sector employees would be under this uh, this new OSHA rule. There's an option for employers to test weekly as a, uh, if they don't want to require vaccinations, but that's onerous. The administration of it, the cost of it, not a lot of companies are going to want to do that. They're going to probably start to mandate that their employees get vaccinated. And, you know, we have seen all kinds of carrots uh, throughout this process in terms of incentives, $100, a free beer, um, some a lottery in some states. Some of that has wor- worked a little bit, but it's basically stopped working. Now it's time to get down to brass tacks and say, basically, you can't come back to work. At least this is the Biden administration calculation. You can't come back to work unless you get vaccinated. So it's one of the sort of few remaining arrows in their quiver here. And I think it could be very effective. I think there's still questions. I mean, Mike mentioned the litigation. Um, how enforceable is it? I don't think that the, the government keeps vaccination records. So there's still some hurdles here. But I have to say, I think politically, this is a kind of a really significant turning point for Biden and the Biden administration. I mean, they are really kind of taking on uh, that huge part of, of the country and Republican governors who are, you know, going to call this a, you know, just a terrible, you know, invasion um, from the federal government. And I think Biden was angry. And he said, our patience is wearing thin. And he basically criticized the 80 million people or whatever the number is who haven't been vaccinated. And I think Andrew was talking about that there were a lot of carrots. And I think he decided that he can no longer do that. And he needs the six. He can't cajole people anymore. He has to mandate it. And I think it's maybe a bit of a, a turning point for him in, in the way he, he governs. Yeah. I mean, one interesting thing to bring us back to California and tie them together a little bit is that in uh, the Newsom recall, I think that, you know, a turning point in addition to Larry Elder becoming the kind of, you know, bogeyman, uh, you know, someone that Newsom could pinpoint as his alternative was that, The governors in Florida and Texas, Ron DeSantis, Greg Abbott, these Republican governors who prohibited schools from instituting mandate, uh, mask mandates, prohibited vaccine requirements uh, at businesses and elsewhere. And then you see these skyrocketing case numbers. Newsom was able to also point to that as the alternative vision. Do you want California to become like Texas, to become like Florida, and to sort of go on the offense uh, in terms of COVID? And I think you're seeing something sort of similar from Biden in this move. He is he is saying, look, millions and millions, hundreds of millions of Americans have been responsible, have gotten vaccinated, have done their part. They don't want to be stuck in emergency pandemic mode anymore. And the people who are refusing to get vaccinated are the ones who are holding America back. And we need to 
We need to put the the onus on them. It's their responsibility to step up now. And there's also got to be a calculation here that of the, let's say, 80 to 100 million people who aren't vaccinated yet, that most of those or a very substantial chunk of them are not kind of hardcore anti-vaxxers. They are people who are hesitant or reluctant or haven't had the time or a variety of things and that this shove may actually grab a bunch of them, right? Is that, I mean, that's, that's there's got to be, you we know, have some numbers on that, actually. Um, so about half of people who are unvaccinated say they will never get vaccinated. The other half are somewhere in that that category that you just described. So that's a lot of people. That's who he's trying to grab right now. And maybe, you know, it's unclear whether or not he's going to make them oppositional because of the mandate or whether or not this is just going to be the shove that they need to finally get it done. But, you know. Um, another aggressive move by the Biden administration, which we should talk about, is the Justice Department decision to sue to block the Texas abortion law, which was announced by Merrick Garland, the attorney general, on Thursday. And this is uh, really bringing this whole Texas abortion issue to a head. Um, Victoria, just I know you've taking a look at the lawsuit, just walk us through what the grounds for this lawsuit is and how it is likely to proceed and how quickly this is going to get to the Supreme Court. So the federal lawsuit that has been brought is interesting and different than what you might expect it to be. Um, so first of all, it turns upon in many ways the role of a variety of federal agencies or federal organizations who provide health care or abortion services within the state of Texas right now. And so their argument is, to a certain degree, that what Texas has done has actually infringed upon the federal government's role in providing health care to its employees or providing reimbursement to a variety of health care reimbursement in Texas. And then they also pivot to arguing that this law is a violation of the supremacy clause of the United States, which essentially says that, you know, federal law is the supreme law of the land and that states can't just willy-nilly preempt or infringe upon the constitutional that, rights. That, that, the, that the constitution, yeah. in essence, trumps state law, right? Exactly. Right. And that this Texas law essentially infringes upon the supremacy clause of the United States. Now, as interesting and as well-crafted as the lawsuit is, probably suffers from the same difficulty as the original lawsuit against the Texas statute did, which is that the deviously crafted Texas law has its as its enforcement mechanism individuals who bring individual lawsuits. And so when the federal government is seeking an injunction against the enforcement of this law, they literally kind of have no one to clearly enjoin. And so it suffers from the same difficulty that the original lawsuit did. So whether and how this lawsuit can speed up a consideration of the constitutionality of Texas's law is still an open question. So it requires it requires somebody to actually sue first, which I thought had happened, but then didn't a judge dismiss the lawsuit, right? As best I can tell, there, there, there are a few organizations who have been enjoined from bringing a lawsuit. But this lawsuit that, that the Department of Justice brought is not a slam dunk. It's not an, there is not an easy, clear, or fast pathway to stop the Texas law from being implemented, even with DOJ having entered the fray. Well, that... Probably. Famous last words. 
Yeah, well, no, that strikes me as, um, look, you get the wrong judge at the district court level, you know, you're sunk anyway, right? They, they filed this in federal court in Austin, so high likelihood they'll get a Trump appointee. I right? think we know the judge they're going to get, actually. Oh, so they, they they filed and they filed in the same court that the original lawsuit was brought in. And um, so it will probably be uh, linked up to that original lawsuit, which is before a uh, Democratic appointed judge in the Western District. But either way, it goes up to the Court of Appeals and then the, the, the yeah. Supreme Court. But if the Supreme Court is yeah. still looking to, for that exit ramp so it doesn't have to decide this before it deals with the it, the abortion case. It has already teed up the Mississippi right. law. They've got an out here. But if they take it, it like, yeah. that's going to ramp up the politics of this and, the uh, you know, genuine outrage from a big chunk of the country over Texas passing a law that on its face, based on current Supreme Court rulings, is patently unconstitutional. Yeah. So just wait and see. I mean, it's unclear that the the lawsuit was just filed and we're going to see how fast the Department of Justice maybe, you know, kind of moves to accelerate the consideration of the case. So there's and I think uh, uh, Merrick Garland in his press conference uh, press statement made a made the case that uh, this isn't just about this one case and this isn't just about abortion. Uh, This is about states doing the same crafting the same kind of. Uh, dastardly, devious legislation all over the country that could have the effect of circumventing the constitutional rights of of American citizens. So he's planting a flag, essentially saying, don't try this, Ron DeSantis. Exactly. Yeah. One last question, Andrew, before we get to our guest, Dan Schnur. We'll be talking to him about the California recall, but I just want to ask you as the California bureau chief, Larry Elder and the, you know, uh, sky, his uh, meteoric rise in California politics, somewhat improbable. Can you, I, I don't know, have you dealt with Elder? Have you talked to him, interviewed him? Give us a set, your sense of how it is that he is so quickly moving move to the top of the Republican. Yeah. Let, let's just let's just quantify this for a second. The top of the Republican heat means he's pulling about 20 percent in the polls. There yeah. are more than there are like about 50 people on the ballot, um, all dividing up the vote. But you're right. Larry Elder sort of emerged as the Republican frontrunner, so to speak. And I think it is a, a function of the fact that, A, there wasn't anyone else who really caught fire. Remember, we had a little Caitlyn Jenner boomlet when she got into the race. <laughs> By the way, I saw on Fox, Ari Fleischer is the consultant to Caitlyn Jenner. You know, George W. Bush's former White House press secretary is now reduced to uh, consulting to a candidate who's what, polling about one or two percent? Yeah, just absolutely nothing. And then, you know, a, a decent candidate like the former uh, San Diego mayor, Republican Kevin Falconer, you know, a moderate Republican, the type of person who would have been elected governor in California a couple decades ago, also less than five percent of the polls. Larry Elder emerged. He is uh, a talk radio host, a conservative shock jock who's got a sizable existing following. He's an African-American in the Republican Party, you know, sort speaks to issues affecting people in California's big cities with an authority of experience that I think a lot of other Republicans don't have, but coming at it from a conservative perspective. So, you know, he had a certain appeal among Republicans. Unless 
Gavin Newsom can't hit that 50% mark, it doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, I think, I, I, you know, I hope you guys talk about this with Dan, but the, the recall system here in California is truly bizarre when you, when you could have a sitting governor get 49% on the first ballot, be booted out of office, and then replaced with someone who gets 20% less than half as many votes. Um, so I think people will be talking about whether this system needs some reforming going forward from here, because the fact that Larry Elder could potentially have been elected governor um, with so few votes relative to the existing governor is, is a real sort of uh, mixed up situation in terms of the democratic process. Right. And All no right. Democrats really jumped into the fray, right? I mean, well, that was by design. Um, yeah. So Newsom uh, told, you know, Antonio Villaraigosa, the former uh, Los Angeles mayor, was thinking about getting into it. Some other people, basically, the Democratic establishment cleared the field. They didn't want any other uh, alternative option on that second ballot. All right. Well, you have teed up our conversation with Dan Schnorr quite well. We will leave the uh, coming bloodbath over reconciliation to future episodes. Um, so stay tuned uh, as we uh, chronicle the blood on the floor. And let's get to it. now have with us Dan Schnur, former Republican strategist, now uh, teaches politics and communications at Berkeley and USC. Dan, welcome to Skullduggery. Guys, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So you are a California guy, hence our interest in reaching out to you with this uh, California recall coming up on September 14th. There was a lot of concern in Democratic Party ranks about this about a month or so ago. That seems to have abated, although there's a lot of attention and a lot of campaigning going on. What is your sense of where this stands right now? At this point, uh, Governor Newsom looks like he's in a very, very strong position to defeat the recall. Nothing is guaranteed. It's likely to be a low turnout election. But based on the early voting patterns, based on the polls, and based on Newsom's immense fundraising advantage, if he were, if the recall were to pass at this point, it would be a major, major shock. And of course, on the other side of this, you have the rise of Larry Elder, which is getting a lot of media attention. Conservative African-American running uh, and Republican, who seems to be the leading candidate as the alternative to Newsom. And he's clearly sort of, you know, to the right of uh, mainstream politics in this country, further to the right than many, certainly than the last California governor, uh, Schwarzenegger. How do you explain Elder's rise and prominence in this? So Elder has been a very conservative talk show host for many, many years. And he's developed a very, very devoted base of support in conservative circles in California and elsewhere. And that prominence has allowed him to attract a great deal of attention and to raise a great deal of money. But it's important to put this in, in, in perspective. Uh, let's put it in context. The recall, as most of your audience knows from having read by now, the recall ballot out here has two questions. The first is a simple up or down. Should the governor be recalled, yes or no? The second question lists the alternatives, the potential candidates who might replace him. Elder is running by far ahead on the second question, 
But most polls show him drawing roughly between 20 and 25%. So in order for Elder to become governor, or even for him to have a chance at it, the first question on the ballot has to pass, the referendum on Newsom. And what Elder's presence on the ballot has done is it's done two things. It's, of course, elevated Elder himself to the top of the field of Republican candidates very quickly. But it's also been a tremendous help to Gavin Newsom because it's allowed him to frame the race not as a referendum, but as a choice between him, Newsom, and a much more conservative Republican alternative. So what Elder's done is he's helped himself by dominating on question two, but he's helping Newsom too, who's now in a much stronger position on question Just one. Just one quick technical question. If Newsom prevails and the don't recall you know, numbers exceed the recall numbers, do they even count the um, second question, the answer to the second question? Because it's irrelevant, right? They, they do more out of just curiosity right. than anything else. And there will, I will say, there'll be almost, almost certainly there'll be legal challenges to the outcomes, just like you've seen in the outcome of, in the aftermath of the presidential race. So it's probably not a bad idea to keep them on hand. The real reason that that second question is important if the recall fails is what it says about the 2022 governor's race out here next year. The most prominent Republican in the race before Elder got in is a very traditional conservative Republican, the former mayor of San Diego, by the name of Kevin Faulkner. Faulkner is what I would call a pre-Trump Romney-Bush conservative. And Faulkner had been preparing to run for governor against Gavin Newsom next year for a long time. If Faulkner were to finish first on that second, que on that second question, if he were to win that, even if the recall didn't pass, Faulkner would, could be a potentially very strong opponent for Newsom next year. But if Elder wins, particularly in the kind of landslide that appears likely on the second question, then Faulkner is greatly diminished as a potential opponent, and Newsom's re-election looks much, much stronger. A little bit more California inside baseball than you probably needed, but <laughs> no, that's why we're having you on for California inside baseball. So let's 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 actually take it national here. You said before, Dan, that what Larry Elder's rise allowed Gavin Newsom to do was to frame this election as a choice. Elder being the hard right uh, conservative. Republican. And we were just talking about this before the podcast. Newsom was able to do something else, which was to tie Elder and really this whole process to Donald Trump and to the Trump wing of the Republican Party. He went after Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, and Greg Abbott in Texas, what they're doing on COVID, all of the problems they're having. So Ron Brownstein wrote this piece in The Atlantic, which just came out, which we were just talking about, saying that the Democrats could actually, uh, this could actually be something of a model for them to follow for the midterm elections in, in 2022 to really run against Donald Trump and that wing of the party and to go hard at them. Uh, do, you, do you think that uh, would be a smart strategy? And do you agree that, uh, that, that Newsom has been really effective in deploying that strategy? Uh, I, I, I do. First of all, Dan, I should thank you for being so polite in dragging me out of the byways of California politics. <laughs> That's doing that so, so nicely. Well, it all starts in California, right? We all always, that's the laboratory for everything. There's a, there's a famous uh, quote from the author Wallace Stegner. It says, California is America only more so. <laughs> and I like that quote because it's both accurate and it appeals to our natural egomania. And also it works at a, <laughs> on a couple of different fronts. But your question is the smart one because if Newsom does defeat the recall on Tuesday, which is looking more likely, 
every smart Democratic candidate running in next year's midterms is going to be looking to take that playbook and run it for themselves. And I think what's instructive, Ron Brownstein, not surprisingly, wrote a very smart piece. But it's worth remembering that at the beginning of this campaign, Newsom was attempting to run against Trump, and it wasn't working because Donald Trump was neither on the ballot nor is he in the White House. And so it just wasn't striking the right chord. And particularly for a Democratic base that's not all that excited about Newsom, he's a little centrist and a little establishment for a lot of California progressives. Warning them about Trump wasn't really making having the, the desired impact. It was only once Elder got into the race that Newsom was able to establish a local state tie-in to the national argument. And I think the lesson for Democrats next year, should Newsom prevail, is you can't just run against a former president because that's the past. You need to link that past monster to the clear and present danger that your party's base might see on the current landscape. So what Newsom did is he linked the past and the, the past and the present, and that's what allowed the the message to start resonating in a way it hadn't when he was simply just running against Trump. So let's scroll back if we can a few weeks when everyone thought Newsom was in real trouble. Right, not too long ago, everyone thought there was a real substantial possibility that he was going to lose this. Why made Newsom so vulnerable to begin with? Why did he find himself in this position? Great question. And to me, this is more than anything. This is the difference between a referendum and a choice. What Michael Isakoff knows, because he and I have been talking about this for decades now, is that every incumbent wants their reelection campaign not to be a referendum, a simply up or down vote, but a choice between them and an opponent. Joe Biden used to like to say, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. So for many months, though, because of the way the recall ballot is set up, Victoria, Gavin Newsom was running a referendum, up or down on Newsom. And because the governor had made the very ill-considered decision by his own admission to attend a dinner at a very expensive restaurant at the height of the shutdown last winter, two things converged. Number one, there was Newsom, who's seen by many in his own party as being somewhat of a child of of privilege. The sight of him being at this this very fancy dinner at this very expensive restaurant, at the same time politically that he was warning the rest of California not to gather for those types of events. So through the worst of the shutdown last winter, Newsom was judged, was, was being judged fairly harshly, but in a vacuum. And as I was saying a minute ago, When Larry Elder emerged on the scene, all of a sudden it wasn't a referendum anymore. It was a choice. And Newsom was able to say, if you don't keep me as governor, look what's going to happen. And Elder, given 30 years of training as a talk show host, cooperated in every single way possible by continuing to say controversial and combative things that fed into Newsom's message. So I would divide it just real quick. I would I would divide the recall into two stages, pre-elder and elder. So this is the the French laundry recall is is basically what this is. But to put a finer point on it, you know, there are a lot of other governors who have done pretty awful jobs running their states. 
possibly worse than Newsom has done running his own state, but they're not facing recalls. And that's because California has a kind of a, a pretty singular recall system. I mean, it feels like, you know, if it's a year in California, there's a recall going on. Florida isn't facing recalls. New York doesn't have recalls. Illinois doesn't have recalls. Is the is the whole recall system in California broken? I mean, what why do we have a, a recall every other, every time I turn around, there's another recall in California? Well, to be fair, there have been two recalls in over in a century. So, well, no, no. The, I mean, every every governor since 1970 has had a recall. There have been, been 179 recall att- attempts in the last hundred years. It's, that's a that lot. Said, that yeah. said, who have qualified for the ballot? And I'll let you guys decide where the conversation goes. I can either drag you through a history lesson about <laughs> why we have a recall and a ballot initiative and a referendum process. A short I, history I know, lesson. I know, I know what I want, but Isikoff definitely no, but, but what I want but, but, more, more, more relevant uh, to me than, than the upsides and downsides of the recall process is the point that you were making about the way voters judge Newsom on the pandemic, because this election has been about the pandemic from the beginning. Make no mistake, if he had not gone to the French laundry, it never would have qualified. Last winter, when he was looking very vulnerable, It's because voters were judging him very harshly. This spring, when things began to open up, the recall looked more in doubt. When the Delta variant hit, that's when the poll numbers got closer. But what's happened is when voters are asked, do you approve or do you disapprove of Newsom on the recall? Early last spring, barely a third of voters were giving him a positive rating on it. Now more than two thirds of Californians say they approve of the job that Newsom is doing on the pandemic. No Republican running for governor could possibly have defeated Gavin Newsom in the recall election. COVID could, but it's not because the voters here have come to conclude that he is doing a much better job on it than they thought last uh, last spring and last winter. Well, look, I mean, it seems as if COVID both hurt Gavin Newsom in multiple ways. Let's remember that the uh, supporters of the recall were able to get this extension because of COVID, which allowed them to have more time to get more signatures. Then French Laundry happened, and they the numbers skyrocketed for the uh, recall. And then, of course, the lockdown and all of the policies, people grew tired of them. But now, as you're pointing out, COVID seems to be helping him. I guess my question for you is, assuming he wins, and it looks like he will defeat the recall effort, where do you think Gavin Newsom will stand coming out of it? Will he be weakened or is there a sense in which he might actually be stronger going forward? He has this uh, midterm election coming up, but you know, overwhelmingly uh, democratic state, there's very little chance he's going to lose that. What kind of a political figure do you think he is coming out of this whole process? So this first, you're exactly right. The trajectory of the recall can be traced almost entirely by the ups and downs of the virus. The recall against him wouldn't have qualified if not for the pandemic. And now he's looking better because people here are feeling better about their prospects going forward. I think the answer to your question, Dan, depends on the margin by which the recall is defeated. If Newsom defeats it in a landslide, which is entirely possible, then he not only becomes an overwhelming favorite for reelection, but at least in some circles, it would be seen as a potential enhancement of his national political prospects. But that said, if the recall is defeated, but only narrowly, then I think Newsom's wounded. Again, it, it, in all likelihood, it doesn't cost him re-election. Since the last 
recall campaign qualified for the ballot for governor in the state back in 2003. California has gone from deep blue to indigo. So the likelihood of Newsom losing a reelection campaign is pretty slim. But I think if he just barely survives it, then his national stature probably doesn't grow the way it would if he beats it in a convincing way. If only because, as we said earlier, Democrats all over the country are going to be taking notes from what he did and how he did it to see if they can apply that strategy to their own campaigns next year. Do you think we're going to see, if he does win uh, by an overwhelming margin, do you think we're going to see uh, Gavin Newsom making trips to uh, New Hampshire and Iowa? Iowa, Do you think he's a... I I suspect we will. The only person I know in California who's thought about being president longer than Kamala Harris is Gavin Newsom. (laughs) They've been... Well, he may be, he potentially could be running against her in a Democratic primary if Joe Biden doesn't run again. Well, they have been uneasy off and on again allies, sort of, for many years. They've sort of circled each other warily. When Barbara Boxer announced she was retiring from the Senate, there was a real face-off between the two of them as to which one would run for the Senate seat. Ironically enough, Harris at that point really wanted to be governor. And apparently Newsom told her, said, no, I'm running for governor. You go run for the Senate seat. Now she's vice president and is flying into his rescue this week to campaign for him up in the Bay Area. But yes, if, if Newsom beats this convincingly, one, I think you'd have to see him as a potential replacement for Dianne Feinstein in the Senate, either appointed or elected. And I think after that, you'd almost certainly see him harboring national political ambitions. Speaking of Feinstein, uh, Barbara Boxer gave her a little bit of a nudge there in an interview she did the other day, suggesting that, you know, life after the Senate can be very fulfilling, Diane. And uh, I think, isn't that, um, you know, a reflection of Democrats are a little bit concerned about uh, Feinstein's. Okay, so Barbara Boxer, and I say this with admiration, has never gently nudged anyone in her entire life. Okay. All right. I got two questions. Uh, One is a bit of a diversion, but I have to ask it. Whenever you're talking about Newsom and Donald Trump, I can't get out of my head Kimberly Goyfil, if I'm pronouncing her name right. The Trumpite who now lives with Donald Trump Jr., who was married to Newsom for like four years. Can you explain how uh, anything about that? Because it doesn't seem to compute for me. I was actually living in San Francisco when both Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris were first elected to office. And one of the even then, one of the most peculiar things on the social scene in San Francisco was Gavin Newsom and his spouse, Kimberly Gullifoyle, maneuvering at receptions and parties not to cross paths with Kamala Harris and vice versa. I've never had a serious talk with Kimberly Gullifoyle about her political convictions. She and Newsom were in national magazines photographed as the new Kennedys. Obviously, that wore off, and it's been reported somewhere that a couple of years ago, she, Kimberly, called him Gavin to ask him to give Donald Trump Jr. advice on his hair gel, but I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> I got to say, I, you know, I would count this as a negative for Newsom's, uh, you know, national ambitions, but I don't know how it would be used against him. But the more serious question is, look, yes, you're right, clearly, that that appearance at the restaurant unmasked, you know, drinking expensive wine with wealthy friends while others were suffering from COVID. 
was a big factor, probably the main factor. But there are other sort of broader, deeper issues here. California has suffered a loss in population for what, the first time in, you know, certainly over a century ever. The middle class feels squeezed. It's incredibly expensive to live in any of the major cities of California. You add on top the wildfires and everything else. I mean, there are sort of deep issues that are as has created unease among California voters now. Absolutely. The, the, homeless, the homelessness crisis is beyond out of control. The broader crisis of lack of affordable housing is what's driving Californians to move to other states. You know, profound crises in terms of income inequality in our public school system, any number of other fronts. But right now in California, like in most of the country, the defining issue is the coronavirus. And Newsom has what was once uh, the bad luck, but has now turned into good fortune to be facing a recall at the time when one issue is overshadowing all the other things on which Californians view him less favorably. They're not particularly happy with him on homelessness, on education, on public safety. But those issues, despite the Republican candidates' efforts to talk about them, are of secondary, if not tertiary importance to the virus And because unlike last year, when Newsom was telling people to stay home, given the fact that we have vaccines now, the most onerous things he's saying is you must wear a mask, you must get vaccinated. That isn't nearly as onerous. And as a result, particularly when compared in contrast to other states in the country, Californians are feeling good about him on the only issue that matters to them right now. I just want to come back to Elder for a second, because we kind of, is it, is it the Trump base that has elevated him. Is that what explains his yes. dominance? Yes. Yeah, th- th- this is, as I said earlier, a deep, deep blue state. But Donald Trump drew 33% of the vote here. On one hand, that's a landslide. On the other hand, that's a lot of people in a state this big. And the fact that Elder is drawing between 20 and 25% in most public opinion polls, somewhat under the Trump threshold, isn't all that surprising. Because while conservatives are very, very, very outnumbered here, they're pretty devoted and they're pretty persistent. And they're going to stick with Elder all the way through. And unless the unlikely happens and he becomes governor, if nothing else, his stats will be enhanced for for his broadcast work because he's gotten more attention from this recall election than from anything he's done as a talk show host for many, many years. By the way, Dan, I'm well, now going to drag you back into the muck of uh, California politics, <laughs> but in a in a more elevated way, explain to us and to our listeners why the Republican Party has you know kind of floundered in California for for so long. I, I think I read recently that I can't remember since when. Maybe it was since the last recall, but that you know the, the number of Democrats in California has exploded by you know like five million new Democrats or something versus no change in the Republican in the number of registered Republicans or ten thousand more uh, over that a, a very long period of time. Why is that? The, the party, and I should say my former party, uh, is simply not adjusted to the twenty first century. And as the state of California has changed demographically and ideologically, California Republicans have simply been unwilling or unable to change with it. I'll give you one issue, Dan, as an example, and that's the issue of undocumented immigration. Way back in my early days, back in 1994, there was a ballot initiative that you all are all familiar with, Proposition 187, 
which had it been implemented, would have deprived undocumented immigrants and their families of health care and other government services. Well, that initiative passed 27 years ago with almost 60% of the vote, 59 point something. 20 years after its passage in 2014, I ran a poll. At that point, I was running the USC LA Times statewide political survey. And we polled on the same question. Do you think government services should be withheld from undocumented immigrants? And the results were reversed. 60% said no, only 40% said yes. So over the course of 20 years, a full one-fifth of the state had changed on the issue, and Republicans had not changed with it. Some of that has been the demographic change in the terms of growth of Latino and Asian Pacific voters in the state. But even more interesting to me was the immense numbers of young people. This was pre-Generation Z, but the number of millennials of all races and ethnicities who very vehemently opposed the idea of withholding those services. Young white voters thought that withholding services from undocumented immigrants was a horrible idea. I think because they grew up in much more diverse communities than their parents and grandparents, the idea that someone came here from another country was not something all that relevant to them. And the Republican Party, mainly on that issue, but on others as well, just simply hasn't adjusted as the rest of the state has shifted. Quick factoid, and then um, I'll, I'll stop. But the last time Republicans ran a candidate for governor in a general election who had held public office before running for governor was 1998. It has now been more than 20 years since Republicans ran a general election candidate for governor who had held any elected office before running for governor. So narrow, you know, so shallow is their bench, so depleted are the ranks of their leadership that every four years they look to someone from outside politics like an elder to swoop in and save them. And with the notable exception of Arnold Schwarzenegger, no one has. So I noticed that with Newsom apparently cruising to some sort of victory that um, Elder and apparently Donald Trump have turned to a, a, a well-worn page in the playbook, which is that they're already claiming fraud and that the election is about to be stolen from them. I'm wondering if you think that that sort of gambit is going to uh, play or win them any allies in uh, California. Um, no, but... You guys have been watching as closely or more closely than me. You've been watching the Donald Trump playbook for six years now. And what Larry Elder and Donald Trump share as it comes to political strategy is neither one of them really has any interest in growing their ranks, in recruiting new converts. They've never really tried to persuade undecided voters to line up with them. What Trump's done in his campaigns and what Elder is attempting to do in his is simply to motivate their existing base of support. So I don't think there's a I don't think there's a man, woman, or child in California who is not voting for Larry Elder, who will take the lawsuit seriously. But every man and woman in California who is voting for Larry Elder will become that much more excited and that much more motivated by the process. All right, Dan. Before we let you go, I'm going to uh, put you on the spot. How are you going to vote? <laughs> so. I, uh, I run a webinar out here, and my staff gave me this mug. I don't know if you can see it. No to predictions, yes to coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask you for a prediction. I asked how you're going to vote. <laughs> okay. okay. I, I'll, all jokes aside, because I've been in the classroom for so many years, my pet peeve in politics are professors uh, who inflict their own ideology on their students, so I stay out of these things publicly. 
What I will say that, but, but, but what I will say is, as we've all established, the likelihood of Newsom surviving the recall is very, very strong. And the playbook for that, that assuming he succeeds, the Democrats will and should be following next year is not just to run against Donald Trump, but to relate Donald Trump to a current relevant threat in their eyes. And then this is my last, and it's a little bit of a technical question, but it, for those, let's assume the polls are right and you know, 55 to 60% of the voters vote no. Will that overwhelming majority of voters, how many of them will even bother to vote on the second question of who should replace them? Why? Will they, will they, will they do so? Newsom um, has very strongly been urging his supporters not to vote on the second question because he and his advisors believe that that complicates the message they're trying to get out. Their message is simple. It's vote no and then go home. And they feel if they started to nuance who's less, slightly less objectionable than someone else, it just gets complicated. If I had to guess, I would say that if not half, a pretty strong, strong plurality of recall opponents will vote on the second question. But interestingly enough, the fact that Newsom will have successfully convinced so many of his supporters not to helps Larry Elder. And if you're Gavin Newsom and you're thinking about next year's reelection campaign, the fact that you'd much rather run against Larry Elder than a more conventional, traditional conservative like Faulkner, the better Elder does, the better off Gavin Newsom is not just in 2021, but 2022. So in addition to the simplified message from Newsom, it also elevates the candidate who he'd most like to face a second time and diminishes the one guy he just soon avoid. All right. Well, Dan Schnur, I want to thank you for joining us uh, and um, sharing your insights. Uh, you're on the record on this, so we will hold you to everything you've said, uh, especially after the returns come in and then down the road as uh, Newsom faces his political future. But anyway, great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very flattered. And Victoria, if you ever want that mind-numbing conversation about <laughs> direct democracy in California, you know where to come. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dan. Take care.